Greetings and welcome to the First Timothy Sermon Series here at Good Shepherd OPC, a mission work of Cornerstone here in Houston. My name is Miller Ansel, the church planning intern who delivers these sermons on Sunday evenings at 5 o'clock. Please check out our website at gsopc.org for more information on our evening worship as well as our midweek Bible study. And here is this week's sermon. Please turn with me to our Old Testament reading, uh, Micah 3. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. If you find one of those other two, you're close. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. We're in Micah 3. Micah 3, verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention as it is read. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. We'll turn to our sermon text in First Timothy. Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray. Our Father, we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it your righteousness is revealed from faith for faith. As you have said, the righteous shall live by faith. So we ask now that you would increase that faith in us and show us the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So over the past few weeks, we've been dealing with issues of men and women in the church. Uh, how one ought to behave in the church. We started with men, how they are to pray. We looked at women, how they are to dress. Last week, we looked at uh, the fact that women are not to have authority over man in the church. And now Paul goes back to the men. 
So we have something of a chiasm. Um, and in 3, 1 through 7, um, we counter these qualifications of men who are to have authority over the people in the church. <laughs> now, after last week, you might have been left thinking, well, if women are not to have authority, does that mean that every single man has authority in the church? But that's not the case. Leadership in the church is not for every male, but it's for those uh, who meet these 14 qualifications as seen here. This is especially relevant to us at Good Shepherd for two reasons. First is that as a church plant, we need to be on the lookout for men that meet these qualifications, these characteristics to lead this congregation. The last two years, I've attended the OPC's Church Planter Conference, and Reverend John Shaw always asked this question, when should a church plant begin looking for elders? And the answer is, right away, yesterday, be looking for elders. As a church plant moves towards becoming a particular church, we might be apt to think that it's finances that hold them back from particularizing. And of course, finances are needed. But it's more often the case that what stops a church plant from becoming a particular church is a lack of elders. So I encourage you, keep your eyes peeled the coming months, the coming years, as more people come in here uh, for men that might make good elders for Good Shepherd. Secondly, this list is very relevant to us because as church members, you are to imitate your elders. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So if you came here tonight thinking, I'm never going to be an elder, I can just kind of kick back and listen or not pay attention, um, I have to burst your bubble because you are to imitate your elders. So these qualifications are to be seen in all church members. Even more so. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, exhibits all of these characteristics perfectly. And as followers of him, we need to imitate Christ as well. So then, verse 1 gives us an introduction to the list, and it begins that this is a faithful saying or a trustworthy saying. There are several of these in the pastoral epistles. Uh, we've seen one already. Chapter 1, verse 15 said, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's a faithful saying. And that's the tenor of most of these faithful sayings. They're dealing with salvation. Only in 3.1 do we have the exception that deals with church government, of all things. Um, so here's this, this faithful saying, dealing with church leaders, or uh, as our text says, the office of overseer. The King James says bishop. Um, I've been using the word elders so far. Uh, we can do that. Elders and bishops and overseers, it's three different words for the exact same office. Titus 1 shows us that, where Paul talks about elders in verse 5, and then in verse 7, speaking about the same elders, he calls them bishops. So bishops are elders, elders are bishops, they're all overseers. It is this office. Uh, we should also note that there are teaching elders and there are ruling elders. Teaching elders are ministers. Um, ruling elders are the, uh, the 
the men that join the teaching elder and rule. Uh, Paul's addressing both groups, ministers and ruling elders. So, and then we read, uh, he desires, the one who aspires to the office of overseer, desires a noble task. The work of the elder is no light matter. It's a noble task. It is a good work. It is hard work. And the elder needs to look to that work, not to the honor, not to the privilege of being an elder. It's not all glitz and glamour uh, being an elder. Today, we might think that the office only exists to uh, something to put on one's resume, to bolster one's political career or business ventures. But in fact, for much of history, certainly when Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, to aspire to be an elder was to aspire to death. The church was being persecuted, and her leaders faced that possibility of being murdered for being a leader, for being an elder. How many today would aspire to such an office if it, if it meant that threat of death? And if death were a threat, naturally that leads to the fact that one aspiring to the office cannot rely on himself. His confidence must be placed in the Lord. It's a good question to ask a potential elder. Where is your confidence placed for this work? Is it in yourself, in your own abilities, or is it in the Lord? 2 Corinthians 3.5 reminds us, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. That's where the sufficiency comes from. So one who aspires to this noble task must not do it upon his own strength, but upon the sufficiency from God. So let's now dive into these 14 qualifications here, starting in verse 2. Uh, an overseer must be above reproach. This means that uh, an elder must have an irreproachable, uh, or must be irreproachable in his conduct. He must, uh, in his observable conduct, he must be above reproach. Right? Do elders sin? Absolutely. Even in the Old Testament, the priests had to offer a sacrifice first for their own sins. The church has long recognized her leader's sin. Yet those sins ought not to be glaringly obvious in an elder's life. An elder's conduct should be such that there is no criticism concerning his Christian life. We see this time and time again in the life of Christ. The Pharisees and Sadducees wanted him arrested, but they cannot find anything in his conduct worthy of arrest. They have to persuade others to lie about Christ in order to arrest him, right? Because Christ lived above reproach. In fact, when they finally do arrest him, Jesus says, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching. You did not seize me. Had there truly been something reproachful in Christ, he was there in public to be arrested. But he was not. So let our leaders, our elders, be like Christ, be above reproach that none can find uh, in a, a glaringly obvious sin in their lives. The next qualification uh, has had many interpretations over the centuries that an overseer be the husband of one wife. Some have interpreted this to mean the man may only have one wife for life. 
Thus, if he is widowed, he may not remarry. Uh, some have said that an elder must be married. He can never be a bachelor. Um, some have interpreted this allegorically to say that the, the minister's one wife is the church. Um, and so, therefore, the minister remains celibate uh, throughout his life. Uh, these would all be incorrect. The, the Greek is literally the elders to be a one-woman man. Right? We have that phrase in English. Oh, that guy, he's a one-woman man. That's a good thing. You see that about single people, too, right? Um, it's a one-woman man, which simply means an elder is to be faithful to his wife. Perhaps polygamy is in mind. Going back to the Old Testament, Paul's saying the elder cannot be polygamous. Uh, perhaps he's getting more at the uh, concubinage, maybe at the mistresses that many would have had in the first century. And Paul's saying you cannot uh, do such things. You must uh, love your wife and be faithful to her. Be a one-woman man. So the elders are to imitate Christ. Christ has a single bride, the church. So in that sense, the elders imitate Christ as well. The next two, sober-minded and self-controlled, both deal with having mastery over oneself. The word used for sober-minded, it comes across well in the ESV, usually deals with alcohol, that one is to be sober. Although given that Paul's going to say not a drunkard in a bit, uh, it's probably best to translate this in the idea of sober-minded that the elder's thinking is always clear. It's not clouded judgment. Um, the elder is thoughtful. He is not rash. He's in control of his body, of his mind, and of his speech. We see these two characteristics in Christ throughout the gospel. The way Jesus handled the challenging questions from people is a good example to us. Matthew 21, he's asked by what authority he performs miracles. We would understand if Jesus responded rashly, calling them names, flaunting his works. He's the son of God. What do you mean by what authority do I perform miracles? But instead he responds wisely with a question to the chief priests that they could not answer. Thus Jesus silenced the opposition and he maintained that self-control and that sober-mindedness. An elder is to be respectable. That is, he's to have qualities that others admire and long to have in themselves. We all know people like that. Uh, friends or mentors that we look up to and we see certain characteristics that we really respect them for. We long to have them ourselves. Right? Maybe we admire somebody's integrity, somebody's love, their compassion, their thoughtfulness. We say those people are respectable and we hold them in high regard. So it is to be with our overseers. An elder is also to be hospitable. Today we think of hospitality as having somebody over for a meal sitting around the table. Absolutely, that is hospitality. But it was so much more in the first century, right? A time when they had hotels, but they weren't as numerous as they are today. Staying in a hotel was unsafe, it's very dirty, not really somewhere you want to go. And so uh, these elders would invite Christians, they would invite strangers into their home to not stay um, in those dingy hotels. 
In fact, it's really something all Christians are to do, to be hospitable. Hebrews 13.2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Uh, While all believers ought to be hospitable, it is really for the elders to set that example. The next qualification, to be able to teach. It's unique to elders. There's a lot in common between this list and the next list we see dealing with deacons. Able to teach those particular to the office of elder. And it doesn't mean simply the ability to get behind a pulpit and wax eloquent. But it means to be able to instruct others in the Christian faith. Uh, Being able to teach. um, We might do it this way. Ask the question, uh, can this man give guidance to people from the scriptures? Can this man sit down and explain Christianity 101 to somebody? Can he expound the scriptures as Jesus did? When Jesus' enemies, the Sadducees, came to him, they asked him about the resurrection, which is suspicious because Sadducees don't believe in a future resurrection. But they asked him about the resurrection, and Jesus tells them that they have actually misinterpreted the scriptures. And Jesus gives the proper teaching. Then at the end of it, even the Sadducees, we read, were astonished by his teaching. Thus, an elder must know his Bible and be able to articulate it in an understandable manner to people, as Christ did. When we look at verse 3, we see four more characteristics in the negative. The first is not a drunkard. The Old Testament is replete with warnings, not just on drunkenness, but on drunkenness and and the lives of an authority figure. The priests were not to drink on the job. In fact, some say that's the issue with Nadab and Abihu. Remember when they offer strange fire to the Lord and the Lord kills them for it. Uh, There's some suspicion that perhaps they were drunk. You see it in Proverbs 31. uh, King Lemuel is not to get drunk and drink uh, because he will pervert justice. And so similarly, elders are not to be drunkards who might rule unjustly due to the alcohol. Uh, They might acquit the guilty. They might punish the innocent. They are not to live a lifestyle of drunkenness. The next two fit together well. Uh, An elder is not to be violent and is not to be quarrelsome. Elders have to deal with all types of people. Some of them are bold and in your face. Some might be aggravating, uh, but the elder is to uh, keep his cool. He is not to be quarrelsome, and certainly not to be violent. They must display gentleness and reasonableness in all situations. We are susceptible to quarreling. We're part of a denomination that was born uh, out of a dispute. One contemporary theologian has dubbed us Machen's warrior children uh, because we like to argue and have theological battles. We must resolve uh, to not have men ruling over us who like to argue and fight. Discussion is one thing. Quarreling is something else. Let our elders seek to be like Christ, the Christ who was incredibly gentle, 
right? He fulfilled that prophecy of Isaiah 42.3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. There are many people in the church that we might dub bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks. Let our elders be those that know how to care for them without argument and without violence. The last negatively stated qualification is that elders are not to be lovers of money. Throughout history, the church has had to deal with this issue of men trying to make a wealthy living out of preaching. That's why we read the Micah text a minute ago. Micah uh, 3, we see that priests are teaching for money. The prophets are practicing divination for a buck. The Pharisees sought money. Jesus tells them that they are lovers of money. Luke 16. Judas was a lover of money. Flip on the television and you'll find many who quote unquote preach because they love money. That is not to be the elder. The elder is to be content with what he has and seek to serve God and not money. Then we move to the household in verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The home is a little church. And a man must lead his home first before he can lead the larger church. Let Eli serve as a negative example from 1 Samuel 2 and 3. Eli was a church leader. He was a priest. He was also a judge of Israel. Yet his sons were worthless. They were priests too. And his sons would go around stealing sacrifices from the Lord, sticking their big fork in the cauldrons, pulling out the best meat. That was the Lord's meat. They would sleep with the women at the tent, at the tabernacle. Eli does little to stop them. He does little to put his household in order. And Eli was rejected for his poor leadership in his home. If he couldn't lead his family, how could he lead the church? So he and his family, his household, were rejected. And that paved the way for Samuel to really step in and be the leader. So an elder must keep his children in submission, unlike Eli. And the best way for a leader to keep those that he's in charge of in submission is to be respectable. Not a tyrant wielding a, a sword or a rod, but to live a life where those that are to be in submission can respect. It goes back to an earlier qualification. The job of leading is made a lot easier when we are respectable. And so we observe uh, a potential elder's personal qualities, but we're also to look at his home. Is his home in order? Does his wife respect and submit to him? Are his children submissive? Is he dignified? The next to last qualification is that he is not to be a recent convert or he may become proud. We see this with some frequency in the broader church. Somebody is converted and they're excited. And that's great. And so they're thrust into a position of leadership. We don't want to discourage the great zeal that comes with a new conversion. But we also don't want to foolishly hand that person authority in the church. 
There's numerous reasons to do so. Uh, But Paul gives one, that he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. This is not just teaching that the new convert who's handed authority will become uh, proud and tempted by Satan. Rather, it is that he will succumb to the same condemnation of Satan, that of pride. It's quite dangerous for a new convert to even be considered for the office of elder. For the sake of his own soul, we should abstain from encouraging him in leadership roles. That condemnation of Satan, that was not a slight stumble. That was a complete collapse. It was a deadly, irreparable collapse on his part. And as the saying goes, when pride enters, wisdom exits. When pride enters, wisdom exits. So a new convert is not to be put into the role of elders. He may become proud and stumble quite greatly. Our 14th and final characteristic, found in verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So we have seen that leaders must be well thought of in the home, in the church, and now in the public eye. An elder must not just act wholly on the Lord's Day and then have unethical business dealings on Monday. The world's always watching Christians, seeking to find their hypocrisy. They want to be able to write the church off as nothing of interest. The news abounds with articles of perverted pastors, greedy pastors, and so on. Don't let it be for your elders. Let the world have to lie to think poorly of Christians like they did with Jesus. He was perfect in his dealing with outsiders, and yet above reproach. If we are not aware of how we live before the watching world, we too may fall into disgrace and discredit the church. That's what Satan wants. That's the devil's snare we read of, is that the outsiders may look and discredit the church. Well, that is quite a list, quite quickly covered as well. Um, Boy, as we read these qualifications, who can measure up to this? How do we have elders in churches at all? Were it not for the grace of God and the love of his church, nobody would measure up to any of these. Thankfully, the Lord does raise up men and fits them for this noble task. 2 Corinthians 2.16 reminds us, Let those bless God and be thankful, whom the Lord has enabled and counted faithful. He will fit us for our work and reward our faithfulness with the crown of glory. The Lord is fitting men, preparing men for this work. He's preparing them for good shepherd. We must be on the lookout for them, measuring them by these qualifications we're given in these seven verses. We should also note how Christ perfectly embodies these characteristics. I've given several examples throughout of Christ's perfect work as the perfect leader, perfect king of his church. While he did all these good works as examples to us, they weren't merely done just to be examples to us. Um, 
It was for the sake of our souls that he lived that perfect life, the perfect works that he did. Christ was above reproach. He was not violent to save his church. He was self-controlled because he loved you. He was not greedy for you. As mentioned, our elders will sin because all human beings sin. And our only hope is that perfect righteousness of Christ. Friend, if you're not trusting Christ tonight, you've been shown many characteristics that you don't measure up to. I don't measure up to them either. I know that. But if you put your faith and hope in Christ's doing of these perfect works, you will find salvation. In fact, may we all be built up in faith tonight, seeking towards these qualifications, not in order to gain God's love, but because he has loved us. And that love is shown forth in Jesus Christ's perfect life and his death for our sin. So all praise be to him. Amen. Our Lord, we have no right to speak to you and praise your awesome name were it not for the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Teach us all to be like him in gentleness, in self-control, in hospitality, and these other characteristics. And may you increase our faith in his great works, that we put no trust in ourselves, but in Christ alone where our hope is found. We also pray for elders, for Good Shepherd. Bring men to this group to lead her, to be a model of Christ's likeness to her. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.